If you haven't been with us thus far through the book of Leviticus, uh, the book of Leviticus is all about God drawing an unholy people into His holy presence to serve Him and to love Him. And that's what this morning's text is about as well. So, uh, you should know that there are uh, a modern people in the nation-state of Israel known as Samaritans. Now, when you're thinking of Samaritans as people who know your Bible, you're probably thinking of those in the New Testament, intertestamental time period who were kind of known as half-breeds. They were despised by the Jews. N- not the same thing, okay? But, but these, these modern people called the Samaritans in the nation-state of Israel, uh, they still practice the holy day that we're going to be talking about today, known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Uh, they still believe that they have their own Aaronic priesthood, descended from Aaron in the Bible. And so once a year, these Samaritans, they gather at Mount Gerizim to celebrate this holy day of Yom Kippur. And uh, as the festival begins, the goats are walked down a little pathway, and they get taken into a big concrete courtyard. And there in the courtyard, there's like a little makeshift platform And the high priest gets up with his knife and he cuts the animal's throat and then he raises the bloody knife in the air and jumps up and down and all the people celebrate. Now, conspicuously absent from these celebrations uh, are things like the Ark of the Covenant and uh, a tabernacle. And all the requisite parts of the tabernacle. There's no altar, there's no this, there's no that. It's really just a bunch of people slaughtering goats in a big open space. Are they celebrating the Day of Atonement? Is that what the day of Yom Kippur was all about in the Bible in Leviticus 16? Just just killing a bunch of goats? Is that kind of the idea? No. Amen. I like your style. Everybody be more like Nolan. Well, we're going to find out the answer to that uh, this morning as we dig in. So let me pray, okay? Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. All of it is good for our souls. Help us to be earnest in hearing your word as it speaks to us this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Now, I think that we'll be best served by breaking this morning's sermon up into two parts, okay? Part number one is for the engineers in the room, okay? This is the mechanics of the Day of Atonement. This is where we're going to basically just walk through, and we're going to see who did what, when they did it, and how they did it. So if you're the kind of guy who likes to take things apart and put them back together, and that's, like, that's what you call fun, okay? That's, you're going to enjoy part one. If, if that's not who you are, just do try to stay with me because it's going to be what you learn in part one is going to be helpful for you understanding part two. And in part two, we're going to talk about the meaning of the Day of Atonement, what it, mean, what it meant for the people of Israel and also what it means for us today. Are you guys with me? Oh, that was sad. Are you guys with me? All right, here we go. Uh, part one, mechanics. So let's begin by talking about the timeline. Where are we in the book of Leviticus? Because it's, it's a little choppy. We tend to think like everything in the Bible should be perfectly chronological. That's not really the way people in the ancient Near East thought about stuff like this, okay? 
what you should know is that the Day of Atonement, these instructions are given to the people of Israel uh, after the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, which in your Bibles are, is all the way back in chapter 10. So you can see this just by looking at chapter 16, verse 1. It'll kind of it'll kind of reset the, the time frame. So it, this is not like a Quentin Tarantino movie for you. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Okay, so this is, this is when this is taking place. Now, you remember that the story of the deaths of the sons of Aaron... That came right on the heels of God laying out for a whole bunch of the first chapters in Leviticus the proper way for his people to approach him in worship. And they didn't do that. Well, now we're picking back up in what we know of as chapter 16 in God giving out these ordinances. And the ordinance that he's giving to his people today in chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. Um, now, you'll remember that the sacrifices given earlier in the book of Leviticus... Uh, those ordinances, they were kind of all over the place. I mean, not in God's mind, but to us. Some of them were weekly, some of them were monthly. I don't think there were any quarterlies in there. I don't think they really operated like that. But, and then a lot of it was just on an as-needed basis. You sinned in some grievous way, you bring your sin offering to the priest, that sort of thing. Well, the Day of Atonement is given to the people of Israel to be a once-a-year cleansing of the sins of the entire nation, okay? All of the people. And you can see this very clearly in chapter 16, verses 29 through 34. Uh, cha chapter 16 is long, as you know. We just read it all together. But uh, verses 29 through 34 act as kind of like a, a cliff notes, like a summary of the entire chapter. So if you're the kind of guy who wants to skip some of the chapters in Leviticus, let me give you a little bit of a pass. If you ever feel like you can't read all the 16, just come and read verses 29 through 34, and you'll get the same thing. So let's, let's just read that together. It says, And it shall be a statute to you forever in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and we'll talk more about what that means, and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever to you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, so let's wrap our minds around this. First things first. We have to understand that everything that's taking place in this morning's text is taking place in something called uh, the tabernacle. Uh, Will, can we just go ahead and pull the tabernacle up on the slide here? Uh, when you think about a tabernacle, uh, this is actually its size. This is how big it was right here. No, I'm just kidding. It's something like three quarters of the size of a football field. And it's got three main constituent parts. So what you can see on the outside there is uh, the courtyard, okay? Uh, you see it's got 
you know, the, the, the kind of fence around it, right? And everywhere that's not the tent of meeting, which you see up in the upper left-hand corner, everything else out there, that's in the courtyard, okay? Uh, there you have the altar where you see the fire coming up. That's where the sacrifices would take place right inside of the altar. Then you have the laver. That's where a lot of the washing would take place. And then you have these various tables set up, I'm sure just because... You know, there always needs to be a couple tables set up when you're trying to get stuff done. And then, uh, and then you move on inside of the tabernacle, and you come to what is called the tent of meeting. And inside of the tent of meeting, there's various and sundry things. We're not going to talk about all that this morning. You just need to know that it can be basically subdivided into two parts. The first part is the part that the priest would walk into uh, right as he enters the tent of meeting. And then you go behind the curtain or the veil into what is called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where the high priest would enter once a year on this day, the Day of Atonement, uh, to, to make atonement for the people of Israel. So everything that we're doing this morning is taking place there in the tabernacle. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Okay. We even have pictures. We don't usually have pictures. So uh, let's walk through these order of operations together, Okay. So the first thing that happens is that the priest has to make atonement for himself. So he gets out of his priestly garb, which is all, you know, he's got like really cool like Christmas ornaments on him here and tassels there, and he's all dressed in purple, which was very hard to come by in those days. It was all meant to communicate uh, something significant about his role and about the God that he serves. He gets out of all that, and he gets into white linen. Part of that's supposed to communicate purity, the other part of it is supposed to communicate that he's a servant, okay? He's no longer dressed out in the righteous royal garb of the priest. Now he's dressed to serve, okay? To serve God and to serve the people. And he has to begin the service by making atonement for his own sins. You can see this in chapter 16, verse 3. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd, for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now go over to verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for him for his house. And then you can go down to verse 11. And once again, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Friends, what this is showing us is that even though uh, he is the high priest, he is not unaffected by sins. It's not like God chose him and set him apart, and now he's kind of the only one who's untainted by either original sin or by his own sin. He, even as a priest, is still unable to come into the presence of a holy God carrying his sin with him. So he has to begin by making atonement for himself. I think this is just a really practical little thing for us to remember today in uh, church cultures where we tend to idolize pastors. Hopefully you see this less in our church, not much to idolize there. But in other churches, you see these guys with big personalities, big toothy grins, dressed nice, usually cool as well. And they're up there and they seem to kind of have it all together and they're leading it. And you just look at them and you tend to think, oh man, that guy, he's something special. Well, no, not really. He's a sinner just like you, okay? Now, next, we have the priest offering sacrifices for the people, okay? Uh, that involves two goats. You can see this in verse 7. 
Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now go down to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. Uh, Actually, sorry, no, you know what? Let's go back. Let's read verse 8 as well. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. We're going to come back to that. Now go down to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. So here's what happens. Two goats. One of them is killed. The other one is for Azazel. We're going to talk about Azazel in a little bit, okay? Um, But the first goat that was killed, uh, his blood is used to sanctify the Holy of Holies. So, Will, can you pull back up that image of the Holy of Holies, or actually of the whole tabernacle? So let me just kind of walk you through what happens. He's there at the altar, he slaughters the bull, and then he slaughters the goat, he takes the goat's blood, and then what he does is he goes to the inside of the tent of meeting, beginning in the innermost place, and then he works his way back out. So he starts by spattering blood on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, then he comes out of the Holy of Holies, and he splatters blood in the rest of the tent of meeting, and then he comes all the way back out and he splatters blood on the altar, okay? And you, if you want to read more about this, you can go back and just read through the chapter more carefully. You can find it in verse 15. You can find it in verse 16, so on and so forth. Uh, actually, 15, 16, and 18. And that's about it as far as, uh, you know, the whole blood splattering all over the things uh, stuff goes. Now, let's get back to the other goat. Uh, earlier... We read that the priest would cast lots to decide which goat was which, right? One goat is for the slaughter, another goat goes to Azazel. Well, what is, or who is, or when is Azazel? Well, the thing is, uh, it's funny, you read commentaries on this, and they come up with some pretty crazy stuff. And I, I don't know why, because there's been a basic understanding amongst Jews and Christians for thousands of years that Azazel just means that he is to go out into the wilderness. He is the scapegoat. Az meaning goat. Azel means to go out or to be led out. So here in the climax of the ceremony, after all the blood has been splattered, he's gone into the Holy of Holies and then the the outside of the tent and then the altar of the tent. Finally, he comes out and he confesses, the priest confesses the sins over the head of the second goat and then he sends it outside of the camp. You can see that in verse 20. Look there. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on his head, on the head of the live goat, and confess, it, uh, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. Okay, and then it's all clean up. You know, all the, all the bloody, gruesome stuff is done. The priest washes up 
He changes out of his uh, what was once white clothes and back into his priestly garb. Uh, and then he burns the fat from the animals. Whoever has the assignment of leading the goat outside from that point out into the wilderness, that guy is also blessed enough to be able to have the job of cleaning up the carcasses and the dung from the animals that were sacrificed. We call that a double blessing. You can see that in verse 26. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. So that's really it. That's the mechanics of the Day of Atonement. It it wasn't a super-duper long all-day process. Now that we've kind of got the grasp of it, you can see it's, it's, it's not that complicated. So now let's go back to our friends the Samaritans from the introduction to the sermon. They have no Ark of the Covenant. They have no altar. They have no tabernacle, no, which means they have no courtyard. They have no tent of meeting. They don't have a lot of stuff. So are they practicing the Day of, of Atonement? Well, the answer there, which I was hoping Nolan would hit me with another one, the answer there is no, that they're not. But what if they did have all those things? I mean, all the directions for how to, to build the, the tabernacle, they're found in Scripture. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus if you uh, are weird and you just want to spend a, an hour reading about that. Uh, no, but you could, you know, they could build the tabernacle if they wanted to. So what if they went and they constructed a tabernacle right there on Mount Gerizim, and they did everything exactly the way as it's laid out right here in Leviticus 16. Would they be celebrating the Day of Atonement? And if they did, would God be pleased? Well, I don't think so, friends. And I think you'll understand why once we get into part number two, which we are now. The meaning. Part two, the meaning. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of Easter? I mean, maybe this year it's, uh, you know, face masks and the apocalypse. But typically when Americans think about Easter, we think about nice clothes, often referred to as Easter clothes, very pastel in nature, right? We think about bunny rabbits and Easter eggs and spending time with our family, which is for some of us a good thing, for some of us a not so good thing. You think about church. Now, what comes to mind when you think of Good Friday? When Christians celebrate Good Friday and they have Good Friday services, these services are usually dark, dreary. They're dreadful occasions. And that's by design. A good, a good Friday service for churches that do them, it's supposed to be a time where you as a body, meditate on the death of Christ on the cross that purchased your salvation. Not just his physical death, you're supposed to be thinking about the wrath of God that he bore, that he took on himself. And it's supposed to be a very dark and dreary time. It should feel like a funeral. Uh, a little side note, I once had a pastor of a very large evangelical church tell me that he had uh, thousands attend his Easter service, but only a couple of hundred people attend his Good Friday service. 
I wonder why that is. Anyways, the Day of Atonement uh, in Israel was very unlike our modern-day Easter services. The Day of Atonement in Israel, for all of the people of Israel, not just those who were like, you know, pitching their tents right outside of the tabernacle, for all of the people of Israel felt much more like a Good Friday service. Look at chapter 16, verse 31, and you'll see what I mean. It says, It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. He says that several times throughout there. You shall afflict yourself. Well, we know that Sabbath means rest. You're not supposed to work. And it's not just that you're not supposed to work. You're supposed to cease from work so that you can devote that extra energy to thinking and meditating on the Lord and all of His goodness and His salvation. But it says here that not only are you supposed to Sabbath as an Israelite on the Day of Atonement, you're supposed to afflict yourselves. He does not mean that you put on emo music and cut yourselves with rocks out in the desert. What he means is you're supposed to fast. That's just another word for fast. You're supposed to be broken. You're supposed to be lowly. You're supposed to be distraught. You're supposed to think about the reality of your sin. And it should affect you in some very significant ways. The Day of Atonement was not a day where these people in this tabernacle, the priesthood, in the middle of the camp, kind of had their own bloody, dark, dreary day, and the rest of Israel went on with their lives as usual. There's not a professional clergy and then the rest of Israel doing whatever they do. No. As, as the priests were doing what they were doing in the tabernacle, that, that, that experience, that, that vibe was supposed to permeate the rest of the camp as God called his people to look sin in the face. So that means no work, no cooking, no eating, no lovemaking, no anything other than somber reflection and recognition that God has made a way for an unholy people to dwell in his holy presence. Now, I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, I didn't get saved at a young age and I didn't, uh, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I didn't really understand a lot of this, and one of my main questions, and it might be one of your questions this morning, if you're new to the faith or even if you're not a Christian, why does God care about a dead goat? You know? I mean, from the outside looking in, it just seems a little strange. And by the outside, I mean, even as Christians, just looking back on some of the parts of the Bible that we don't read very often or think very much about, how does a dead goat fix this holiness, unholiness problem that God has with his people. Asked another way, by what mechanism does the shedding of an animal's blood fix this problem of an unholy God, excuse me, of an unholy people dwelling in the presence of a holy God? Well, I've got two answers for you on, 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 on what's going on here. Why, why a dead goat? So if you're a note taker, I don't know if this would be a sub point. I don't know. You figure that out. But answer number one, Life is in the blood. We're not going to talk about everything in chapter 17 this morning. If you want to know the heart of chapter 17, it's basically saying don't sacrifice animals out there in the wilderness. Bring them to the tabernacle because left to your own devices out there in the wilderness, you're probably going to end up sacrificing uh, like a pagan would sacrifice instead of like God's chosen people. So bring all your sacrifices in. But 
One of the relevant parts of chapter 17 is found right here in verse 10. So look there with me. We read, If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from amongst his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes the atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Uh, Did you know that ultimately every human being that has ever lived and died, and every human being that will ever live and that will ever die, has only died of one cause, lack of oxygen. It doesn't matter if they were stabbed or shot, drowned or burned alive, they, they choked on a piece of steak or they went into anaphylactic shock because they couldn't stop eating that shellfish that they were allergic to. It does not matter. Every single person that has ever died dies ultimately from cell death when blood stops carrying oxygen to the constituent parts of their body. Do you know what carries oxygen throughout your body? That's right, it's the blood. So when you read in chapter 17 the words, life of the flesh is in the blood, you should know that this symbolism represents a physiological reality that there's no way that these desert-dwelling ancient Near Eastern people could have possibly known. But God knew. And that's why he chose it to serve as a symbol in this religious ceremony. God's clever like that. Now, you have to remember, friends, that most of the food prohibitions uh, for the Israelites were about communicating something spiritual in nature. So that you can eat this and you can't eat that. Remember when we walked through Leviticus 11, some of it had to do with like health and hygiene, you know, don't eat bats for obvious reasons that are obvious to us all now. But uh, most of it was like, yeah, this is meant to keep you distinct from the nations. Well, this food prohibition, pre- preventing you from eating meat with blood in it, it is also symbolic in nature. It's also intended to communicate something spiritual to his people. Namely, God wants for his people, when they look at blood, to think about things like life and death, not food. The reason why blood scares us, and the reason why some of us get a a little woozy when we see blood, we feel like we're going to pass out, and that's our blood or other people's blood, is because we recognize that something's not right here. The thing that's on the inside, that's supposed to be on the inside, is now on the outside. Our life force is leaving us. And so even a small vision of blood can send a strong vision to our brains that that danger is present, that we are at risk. God has so orchestrated our bodies and our existences that blood and death and life are inextricably linked in our minds. Now, some people have become accustomed to the sight of blood for various reasons, but the fact still remains that it's right for us when we see blood to feel squeamish about what we're seeing. 
Now, these sacrifices are bloody affairs, and they're designed to be that way on purpose. The blood of these animals is supposed to cry out to the people. The sight of blood is supposed to say something about the nature of life and death and our existence. God wants for his people, when they see that animal lying there bleeding, losing its life, to think, that should have been me. That blood represents life. And my life is what God demands because of my sin. Justice demands my life. Now, that's, that's the first answer. Now, the second answer is going to seem like it's uh, in competition with or There's some friction between the first answer and the second answer, but there's not, and I'll explain. So answer number two is that ultimately, God doesn't care about dead goats. I don't know if you want to write that in your notes like that, if you're a note taker, but you can figure it out. So the first answer is, why, why the goats? Well, because there's something about the nature of blood and sacrifice that should communicate something about life and death that the people need to be reminded of. But the second answer is that ultimately God doesn't care about dead goats or dead bulls or dead lambs. When God designed and instituted the Day of Atonement, He knew that all of this symbolism couldn't actually, effectually deal with our sins. God knew that. Uh, Imagine with me for a second a judge who's presiding over a case wherein the defendant is 100% without a doubt certainly guilty of a capital crime. Uh, Capital crime is any crime wherein you deserve life in prison or or you can be executed for for what you've done. Killing a police officer, for example. Now, 100% Certainty is rarely possible in this world, but imagine that we know for a fact, the judge knows for a fact, the jury knows for a fact, this guy, this gal, did it without a doubt guilty. Now, imagine the judge saying, okay, bring in the goat. The prosecutor goes out, brings the goat in, leads it up to a little platform right there in the middle of the courtroom, lays it down, ties it up, cuts its throat, blood goes everywhere. You know, not a pleasant sight. And the judge looks at that goat and he looks at the defendant and he says, you see that? That blood is a symbol of life. And justice demands your life. Do you make the connection? And the defendant goes, oh, yes, Your Honor, I get it, I get it, I understand. That, that should have been me right there. And the judge goes, good, now get out of here. Lesson learned. What would you say if you were in that courtroom and you saw something like that? Would you say that justice had been meted out that day? No. You would say a miscarriage justice of justice had taken place. You would probably ask the question, how does killing this animal atone for the terrible sin that this man has committed? And that's the thing. It doesn't. It can't. And God knew that. God knew that goat's blood splattered here, there, and everywhere didn't actually pay the price that justice demanded for our sins and rebellion. So why did he institute the day at all? Please open your Bibles, if you've closed them, with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Nope, 
There's a lot that can be said in these verses, but we're not going to say it all. I just want to walk you through something. What's so amazing about Hebrews is this is God in the New Testament exegeting, that is, explaining the meaning and the significance of a lot of things in the Old Testament, mainly in the book of Leviticus. If you ever want to try something fun one day when you don't have anything else to do, read the book of Leviticus and then go back and read the book of Hebrews right after and see if that doesn't do something for you. Okay, chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So let's start here. First, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that these ordinances particularly the sacrificial ordinances, they were a shadow. We, in the book of Hebrews, we talked about this. You can look at my shadow on the ground and you can see something like me, but it's not me. These, these sacrificial ordinances in the, in the book of Leviticus and in the Old Testament, they were a shadow of the good thing to come. And the good thing to come was Jesus. And so what they were doing is they were pointing forward to and preparing people for the one who would truly come and offer the perfect and final sacrifices. But you see here that the author of, author of Hebrews knows, and he states that God knows, that these sacrifices were never designed in the first place to take care of your sins. Now keep reading, verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So he's saying, yeah, the proof is in the pudding. If they would have taken away sins, they wouldn't have had to do it every year. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now go down to verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus was the fulfillment of the shadow. He is the greater thing that all of those promises were pointing forward to. These sacrifices that had to take place every year were done away with completely. There's no need for them any longer once Jesus came and offered up his body as the perfect and final sacrifice. And you can see that as well in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Wow. Friends, let me encourage you not to live a life like the Day of Atonement still exists. I feel very much pity for those Samaritans who still think that they can find a way back to God by gathering together once a year and killing goats. God himself has told those Samaritans that those goats' death cannot fix their sin problem. But even if you're not some weird people group on the banks of Israel and Gaza, killing lambs once a year, I want you to know that you can still live the life of the Samaritans in your own religious pursuits. You can still do things on a daily and a weekly and a monthly and a yearly basis thinking that if I do this, I will be okay with God. If I pray enough, if I read enough, if I give enough, if I castigate myself enough, if I 
stay away from enough of these bad things and get involved with enough of these good things, then God will be pleased with me. Friends, you need to know that there is nothing you can do that will make a holy and righteous God accept you in your sin. The only thing that will allow you to come into the holy and righteous presence of God and remain there with Him forever is Jesus Christ and His once-for-all sacrifice. And the great news of the gospel is that it doesn't have to be repeated and it doesn't require any effort from you, at least on the front end. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to have a a pre-approval like a house loan. You don't have to have an educational requirement. You don't have to be X number of years young or X number of years old. You don't have to have a certain amount of money in your bank account. You don't have to have committed so many good deeds in your life. The offer is for anyone who recognizes their need for it. So friends, do you recognize your need for it? And if you don't, I wonder why not. I wonder how you think about yourself. I wonder if you think that you're a good enough person that God will just certainly let you in. That you're not, you're not that unholy. I mean, I know that God's holy, but I'm not that unholy that God would not let me in. You know that that's not true, right? I mean, like deep down, you know that that's not true. You know what you do in the darkness. You know what you think, what you feel in your heart that no one else sees. You know who you are. But maybe you don't know who God is. Friends, you should know that God is completely holy, completely righteous, and He will not allow sin into His presence. But God has made a way for you to enter His presence because His Son came and lived a perfect life, complete obedience. All of His thoughts, all of His emotions, all of His deeds were perfectly righteous. He never disobeyed the Father, never walked outside of His will. And when He died on the cross, He made His blood available to you. And so now it's possible for you to stand before the Father, not in your own unrighteousness, not in your own unholiness, but covered in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, which not only pays the price for your sins, but also cleanses you from all of your past sins. But there's more. There's more to this Day of Atonement gospel. We still haven't talked about this scapegoat. I mean, we know what happened there, but we don't really know what was the meaning, what was the significance. Well, let me try to explain. You need to understand that in the nation of Israel, there were five concentric circles of holiness. Okay? The nation of Israel would go somewhere, traveling through the desert, they would set up camp, And there in the middle of the camp would be the tabernacle, what we're looking at up here. And then the nation would build around that tabernacle all the camps. So the first level of holiness is right there in the Holy of Holies. And then the second level of holiness in the nation of Israel is there in the the holy place, also inside the tent, but not in the Holy of Holies. Then the next holy place would be outside there in the courtyard, And then the fourth concentric ring of holiness would be in the camp where the people dwell. And then finally, the fifth concentric ring 
of holiness would be right outside of the camp. And then after that is what is called the wilderness. Sin, darkness, destruction, death pervade. So, what happens on the Day of Atonement is that the priest slaughters that first goat. He does it at the altar, and then he goes into the Holy of Holies. Now what he does when he splatters blood there is he's not just being in like an interior designer. You know, he's, he's not uh, going Jackson Pollock on the Ark of the Covenant. What he's doing is he's splattering this blood of the goat, which is supposed to symbolically cleanse the sin from the Holy of Holies. But where does, where does it go? You know, you got a dirty counter, you wipe the counter with a rag, where does all the dirt go when you wipe it off? Well, it goes with a rag. Well, here, friends, the priest operates as the rag, as the sponge, if you will. As he cleanses the Holy of Holies, he takes the sin with him. And then he goes out into the rest of the tent of meeting, and he splatters blood on the walls there. And he atones for the sin, he cleanses the sin, and then that blood, excuse me, then the sin comes on him again. And then he goes out to the altar, which if you want to know how sinful the people of Israel were, even the place where they had to offer their atoning sacrifices had to be cleansed from their sin. He goes out to the altar, splatters the blood, once again atoning for sin. That sin symbolically again rests on the priest until finally he comes to the second goat. And all of that sin that he's carried with him from the innermost part out into the altar, that sin that he is carrying in his body is placed on the head of the goat. And he confesses all those sins of Israel, all the hatred, all the envy, all the greed, all the malice, all the everything, right on the head of the goat. Now friends, we know obviously that there's no physical transfer here. It's not like money going out of your account into my account. This is all symbolic. But it's still real. And so now this goat, this substitute, carries the sins of the people out through the camp and outside of the outermost layer of holiness and out into the wilderness away from God and His holy presence. And friends, this too is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus did for us, except for the only difference is on the final day of atonement, when Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, the order is reversed. As Christ comes into the heart of the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, He's walked out and out and out and out. And it's not until He is in the wilderness, outside of the camp, away from the people, that he then bears their sin on the cross. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body. On the cross, Christ is both our atoning sacrifice and our scapegoat. He is both our propitiation and our expiation. Now a quick note on what these confessions mean for us today. This confession of sins was looking forward to a day when the final sacrifice would come. Now I know it's in vogue uh, in some entire denominations and church structures, but also in some local churches, to talk about confessing of sins in a way that is more in line with the old covenant reality of the Day of Atonement than the new covenant reality. 
It's true, friends. Scripture does still call on us to confess our sins to God and to one another. But the way that we do that must be very different and distinct than this kind of confession. You see, we confess not in light of something yet to come. We confess in light of what Christ has already done on our behalf. We do not confess in such a way that assumes that our confessions can earn us any merit with God. We do not confess in such a way that assumes that our confessions can advance our position in any way in relation to God. We do not confess in such a way that acts like our confessions can wipe away any sins that we've committed if only we will do this and that religious act along with it. When we confess, we're just tapping into the grace that has already been made available to us and that we can do nothing in any way to advance or increase. And we can do that because all the symbolism of Leviticus turns into reality on the cross. Christ did not symbolically carry our sins. He really carried our sins. Christ did not symbolically suffer the wrath of God. He really drank the cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs. Christ did not symbolically get shut out of the Father's presence. It was real, and it crushed him. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ did not symbolically shed his blood. He really and truly gave his life and his righteousness in place of our sins. So have you received that grace? Now in closing... Let's not forget to get back to our uh, Samaritan friends. Here's the thing. Even if they could celebrate every aspect of the Day of Atonement, down to a T as it's laid out, if they scoured the pages of Scripture, Exodus and Leviticus, and they, you know, they did it exactly like it's laid out in the Bible, just like the, the priests used to celebrate it as they were out there in the desert... What if they even didn't do it on Mount Gerizim? They actually went out to the places that they thought historically the people of Israel might have done it. Would their worship have been acceptable to God? And the answer to that, friends, is no. Because now that Christ has come, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You can kill a goat. You can kill 10,000 goats. You can do it in all the right way. But none of that matters because God doesn't care about it, that any of that anymore because the shadow has been fulfilled in Jesus. And we praise God that it has. And so now the yearly calendar turns into a weekly calendar where every single Sunday, God's people, in light of that perfect sacrifice, come together to worship with one voice, one heart, as one body, what Christ has accomplished for us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Sunday is so special to us. Not because of any legalistic thing. Maybe it is in your heart, or maybe it was in your congregation or your denomination that you grew up in. But friends, in this church, Sunday is special to us because this is the day we celebrate the greatest thing that has ever happened in human history. The lamb that was slain on our behalf did not remain dead, but he rose to newness of life, and he is taking us with him. Amen? Let's pray.
Help us to cling, Lord God, to these, these promises. Help us to understand these realities. Amen.